amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week, as ever, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And we're delighted to be joined by Spike columnist, Luke Gittos. Hi. Coming up on today's show, the civil war in the Tory party, Boris Johnson at the COVID inquiry and the neo-feudalism of COP28. So the... Tory party is starting to tear itself apart over immigration. We had the resignation this week of former immigration minister Robert Jenrick. Now, this is striking because he was seen as a bit of a soft touch on immigration. He was almost sent to the Home Office to keep tabs on Suella Braverman uh, to moderate her uh, sort of right-wing influences. And now he's accusing Rishi Sunak and the government of being too soft, um, saying that their new revised Rwanda policy is just not going to work. Tom, what have you made of this? It was always going to be a difficult week for the government, but they managed to turn it into an absolute like, clusterfuck. It's incredible, really. I mean, it, the amount of um, controversy that was already going into this with internal dissent within the party about whether or not the in tandem, the kind of reforms to legal migration and the changes to the Rwanda Treaty and also the um, new legislation for Rwanda to try and get that policy off the ground, as it were, that was always going to be a quite bitter dispute, but it's completely spun out of control, as you say, with the resignation of Jenrick, which is mildly hilarious because of the fact that he was this um, very close to Sunak, very much mm. in his kind of mould, if you like, um, very much kind of centrist technocratic figure as, until very recently, but has seemingly gone kind of full national conservative over the course of the past <laughs> couple of months and is now um, outside the tent pissing in. So it's a very um, s- strange situation. But what it does underline is, first of all, that sense that this, this government is really just falling apart at the seams. Um, it really can't even quell any in- dissent within its own amongst its own ministers, let alone within its broader party. It's also a party that doesn't really know what it's for. Um, and so because of that, has a great difficulty with trying to do anything with any level of competency or confidence. Um, but there's also a pronounced sense, I think, of it just being a party of so many splintered factions, so yeah. many different egos, ambitions. It was interesting reading the kind of lineup of the number of Tory right-wing groups that were lining up to criticise Suella Braverman, whether it was the New Conservatives or the Common Sense Group or the old European Research Group and their star chamber. This kind of Judean People's Front, People's Front of Judea sort of splitting. Um, obviously, that a lot of those groups have existed for a long time, but it underlines the sense that there isn't that sense of kind of a key core ideology, yeah. let alone a kind of or even a kind of competing faction that is going to naturally take over. So I think it just. I'm sure we'll get into the issue of migration more specifically, but a Tory party that has n- absolutely no idea what it's for and no idea who would take over next, really, I think it's pretty clear at this point. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's felt that way for some time, I guess, with Sunak not really showing any leadership, but it feels like things are really falling apart now. Well, it's extraordinary how long this crisis has been in the making. It starts with the Rwanda plan, which at the time the Home Office was briefing and leaking to the press that this was going to end up in the courts, was going to be challenged. Yeah. And it ends up being in the Supreme Court, um, being ruled to be illegal because it is in contradiction with a number of our obligations under international law. We can be pretty sure that the government saw that result coming that because 
there was there was reams of legislation that this plan would have been in contradiction to. The Supreme Court didn't really have any other option other than to describe this plan as unlawful uh, in the context of our international obligations. And Sunak would have known all this, so I don't quite know how he's picked this fight uh, and thereby illustrated one of the key divisions within his party between people who think, um, you know, this is now being phrased as kind of a legalistic dispute. Yeah. On the one hand, you have Generic saying uh, that he wants a complete uh, disavowal of the European Convention on Human Rights so that uh, no one could challenge their individual deportations and to the court in Strasbourg. On the other hand, you have more moderate uh, wing of the party saying that um, they should retain uh, their uh, obligations under the European Convention, and that's the one that Sunak has gone with. So a lot of the discussion leading up to this uh, was about whether you believe that we should completely depart from international obligations or not. But that was a, a, a that would have been a dispute that they must have seen coming in advance. And to pick that kind of fight and to have it so publicly mm. and to lead to such colossal meltdown really speaks to an absence of any political judgment on behalf of the moderate wing of the Conservative Party. I mean, you could sort of think, what were they thinking? They didn't need to have this fight so openly and so publicly, but they've had ha they now have to do it because they've come up with a plan on immigration which was never going to work. And uh, so, so quite, I mean, there are some saying that this was a, a kind of culture war with the Supreme Court. It was actually kind of a culture war within their own party. Yeah. And they've ended up um, both sides <laughs> sort of losing. It's also worth remembering that this comes off the back of a row over legal migration as well. There was yeah. a debate around um, the uh, high numbers of uh, uh, legal migration to the country. Um, it's also worth emphasizing that Labour have no plan on this either. It's not mm. as though Labour are presenting a kind of progressive alternative on migration. Uh, you know, Starmer is basically saying that they're not going hard enough uh, that their plan is not going to work, that Labour has their own plan to stop the boats and to bring down migration. So both of the main parties are kind of singing from the same hymn sheet. It's more a question around competence. And, you know, Rishi Sunak has not demonstrated political competence in dealing with this issue. I mean, is, isn't there a problem that so much, as you suggested, so much of this uh, migration battle has been had out through the courts? It's almost as if, you know, they're, they're arguing they have to second guess the courts rather than put forward, you know, what is an actual policy or any principles, I guess, I, I seem to be missing from the discussion. No, I think two things can be true at the same time here, though, because on the one hand, um, it is outrageous that these questions get settled in the Supreme Court. We could end mm. up in Strasbourg as a consequence of this policy. Um, the fact that so much kind of lawfare takes place in this particular yeah. space is absolutely awful. And that certainly is a consequence of our international kind of human rights framework, which is basically just hems in democratic decision-making um, and has become a means through which you restrain an elected government, which is something that no Democrat person who believes in sovereignty could should really um, allow to take place regardless of what policy that you want to pursue. But at the same time, they knew this was going to happen, as yeah. it says. Um, they were picking a fight that they were almost admitting from the outset that they were only going to lose. So it, whilst it's outrageous that the courts um, take such a pronounced role in this... Um, Sunak's critics do have a do have a point when they say that um, you're not doing what is necessary in order to bypass them. Even then, that might stir up all kinds of problems and all kinds of more legal battles to, to mm. come. But nevertheless, his unwillingness to go there, where particularly where the um, European Court of Human Rights and the Refugee Convention are concerned, is what led to this situation. And the reason for it is essentially he's internal party management. Of course, there's a, there's yeah. a solid block of um, supposedly liberal Tories as they're tend to be referred to somewhat inaccurately, in the Tory party who would see this as the most horrendous thing, not for any principled reason it seems like, but because 
these international obligations are kind of like seen like the ultimate like Islington dinner party. Like you don't want to um, look bad in front of the neighbours yeah. by going and touching these particular um, thorny issues. So there's there's that, but there's also the fact that he just seems fundamentally um, unwilling to go there himself as well. You know, and I know he hasn't got much time. The idea that a government on its last legs is going to pick as big a fight as leaving the ECHR is probably unrealistic, but nevertheless, it underlines the fact that it feels like he hasn't been serious about his own policy from the beginning, really. I mean, yeah, don't don't these kind of international obligations sort of allow politicians to speak out of both sides of their mouth, in a sense, because they can say to the um, electorate, you know, we are doing everything we can to stop the boats, to get immigration down. But actually, you, you sort of have a sense that many people in the Tory party are quite comfortable with, you know, large-scale immigration, you'd expect they would be, given the figures <laughs> that have happened over the past decade. Um, but they seem unwilling to say that. They seem unwilling to be honest uh, with people. You know, people aren't stupid, right? People know that there are certain labour shortages. People can be reasoned with that save, you know, and most people agree that, you know, you need more nurses, doctors, things like that. People are not against that. Why can't politicians just say that if that's what they think? Yeah, absolutely. Tom's right that um, so much of the law that governs this area is from the middle of the 20th century, mm. the Refugee Convention, uh, and to some extent even the European Convention on Human Rights, was born in the aftermath of the Second World War and was to deal with society as it was then. The difficult argument that no political party is going to have or has ever had or would like to have is whether these laws are still fit for purpose. That would really put this question back on the political agenda. And, you know, it could give us an opportunity to craft a more humane asylum system than we have at the moment, one which is more welcoming, one which is more, um, you know, perhaps even progressive. Um, but we can't do that when we are um, hamstrung by these laws. And it gives politicians, as you suggest, um, a route to describe their own power in this area as limited and therefore uh, limits the power of the electorate to actually influence these questions. And I think that's the big danger around lawfare. It's not so much the judges making these kind of decisions that, that can really only go one way. It's that the public end up seeing these really important political questions as things that are resolved by lawyers and not by their elected representatives. You know, the idea that elected representatives simply can't do anything about really important matters of public concern. That's the kind of broader effect that this lawfare has. And I think that's even more insidious. And it's also worth saying that looking at some of the other measures that have been brought in, um, some of the restrictions on salary thresholds for yeah. people who want to bring partners over or um, salary thresholds for people coming over full stop. It kind of reminded me as well of the fact that the Tories have been incredibly adept about making a big noise about immigration without actually meeting their own goals, whether it was tens of thousands or just bringing numbers down. Meanwhile, implementing policies which are genuinely nasty. And when you actually um, lay them out to the electorate, they recognise them as such as well. I mean, one thing, those two thresholds that I mentioned, even the government's own projections suggest that those two measures will bring numbers down by like low tens of thousands. Yeah. And yet the potential, uh, you know, human cost to that is really quite considerable. It's quite similar with Rwanda. It's never maintained very high public support. It's got about a plurality in favour of it, so more people are in favour of it than against it. But some of the key measures, the polling makes pretty clear that people are uneasy about things like a blanket restriction on someone who enters the country illegally ever being able to claim asylum here, because it's not hard to think of an example, an Afghan interpreter or whatever, whereby the British public would think, no, we owe a duty to this person, we should look after them. But it's almost because they fail to get a grip on the issue of immigration and because of the fact that they've for so long looked both ways on this issue, they feel the need to engage in these very theatrical, hardline sort of actions and policies. 
they end up doing things that no one wants them to do, yeah. really. I mean, it was like it was very similar with the um, hostile environment in Windrush, for example. We had them effectively deporting British citizens in their desperation to be seen to be doing something about immigration in a situation where their hands were tied by being members of the European Union. So that's the other th piece of this, I think, is that um, the British public are not um, desperate for us to be as mean and as menacing to asylum seekers or um, people coming to this country to contribute as you might think reading some of the commentary and some of the posturing from sections of the Tory right. But um, at the same time, I think the tendency towards pursuing genuinely quite harsh policies is also a product of their ineptitude up yeah. until this point, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and, and people have pointed out that some of the salary thresholds have the potential to break up families or mm -hmm. prevent people from um, getting married and th marrying foreigners and things like that, which, you know, is not really what people think of when they talk about controlling the borders. <laughs> they don't mm -hmm. think, <laughs> stop that person, stop marrying, you know, stop marrying people from abroad or whatever it is. That's yeah. not on the agenda. And Tom, finally, just in terms of, um, you know, where Rishi Su where things go for Rishi Sunak. I mean, there's been some absolutely atrocious um, polling for him recently, suggesting that, you know, he's almost as unpopular as Liz mm -hmm. Truss. Um, you know, so many red wall voters are just not interested in what anything he has to say. I mean, it's kind of, is it just over for him? You know, he's got no hope for the next election. The sense I get is that voters are kind of almost tuned out of what the Tory party is saying. Mm. Um, it's not necessarily they agree or disagree with what's being announced. They're like, oh, you're just not going to do it, are you? So, <laughs> but as, and I think that's particularly telling when you're talking about Rishi Sunak because his only claim to authority in his position was I'm going to clear up the mess that was made beforehand and I'm going to get things done. Here are my five pledges. We're going to punch them out one after the other. Um, but he's, he's, he's a perfect reminder of how the fact the technocrats are really useless. Mm. Um, and that's been a story that's been repeated again and again over recent years. So I don't think there's there's surely no way back for him. Stranger things have happened, maybe. But what I find quite interesting is that even the supposed rival factions do not command huge amounts of public support. Mm. The British public are not crying out for a Suella Braven, Braverman premiership. To the extent that people know who she is, they tend to see her as a bit of an attention seeker yeah. if, who's more interested in talking to the media than actually doing stuff if you look at the polls. So it's bad news for Rishi Sunak, but I think it's also bad news for some of his more arch critics as well. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. So Boris Johnson this week was giving testimony over two days uh, to the COVID inquiry. I'm not convinced that we actually learnt much. He was grilled on everything from uh, the decision behind every lockdown. He was asked about Barnard Castle on the day that we were talking about it, the scandal of Dominic Cummings um, testing his eyesight, as people might remember. Um, he was asked about the gender balance of his uh, top team as to whether that was helping him or hindered him from making the correct decisions. I mean, look, what have you made of this inquiry? It just doesn't seem to be asking the questions that most people would want answered, which is, 
was lockdown a good idea and how can we stop it from happening again? Well, absolutely right. I mean, starting with Boris, I think he made a relatively good account of himself under very difficult, difficult circumstances. Uh, you know, he, talking about, you know, the key thing that was publicised publicized was his apology for not locking down sooner, broadly. But he gave a good account of that, saying he weighed up the arguments mm. in, in favour and, and against. And of course, it's worth remembering that the UK has performed quite well in terms of its overall COVID response, um, compares very well to some other countries in Europe, uh, not as well as some others like Sweden, who never had a lockdown. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we, we did OK. And on, on the inquiry more generally, I think uh, Boris's evidence and the evidence we've heard from Dominic Cummings, so much of it has been completely tangential to the main to, to the important questions that this inquiry should be asking, which is what we should do if a virus like this ever hit again. I mean, that is what an inquiry is for. It's to establish procedures and and perhaps regulations and additional laws um, to manage uh, a, a situation where something like this happened again. Now, query whether anything like, like COVID will happen again um, in the way that it has before. So query whether anything this inquiry could come up with will provide us with any kind of meaningful defence. But that's at least what they should be purporting to be doing. Mm. But so much of this questioning has been about toxic cultures within number 10. Mm. It's been about WhatsApps. It's been about the rude language used by Dominic Cummings to describe the Prime Minister. All of it has been How so... How many women work in number 10 yeah. came yeah. as well, you know, all this sort of stuff. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, you, you just get the sense that what is being played out is this uh, sort of Islington dinner party critique of the way that COVID was handled yeah. in, in a really public performative way. And, you know, this is costing a million pounds a week mm. and it's going to last a very, very long time. <laughs> so I think the British public will get to a point where they say, well, what questions are really being asked here? Mm. What relevance uh, does some of this questioning have? And I think they'd be right to ask it. Um, I think, anyway, I think in general, public inquiries are only useful in as much as they provide concrete suggestions for what we should do in light of what we've experienced. Mm. And so far, this inquiry is getting nowhere near that. Yeah, I mean, Tom, talking to just the sort of distractions from the inquiry, it was interesting that, you know, day one, they asked about Brexit. Uh, <laughs> they are planning to, Hugo Keith Casey has promised he will do something on race mm -hmm. as well, just in case people were worried about that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what do you make of that? I mean, it's just, well, it's, it's just somewhat, every, somewhat everything wrong with the political class to me. No, exactly. It, and it's how trivial these people are. I mean, the whole thing is Luke was... Uh, laying out there has kind of felt like a mammoth episode of the news agents podcast in terms yeah. of the sort of talking <laughs> points that are being regurgitated in terms of how little light is being shone on the what should be the proper questions and also how ill-informed this has been at various points i mean um the, one of the big uh set two moments of this week of course uh hugo keith the kc suggesting that the uk had one of the worst excess excess death records in um in all of Europe, uh, Boris Johnson, surprisingly over his <laughs> over his brief that day, suggesting that's obviously not true. We're very much kind of like middle of the pack in terms of developed countries. Casey then having to wheel back. He's also allowed um, various people who, um, advisors and so on, who clearly did a screeching U-turn early on in the pandemic. He hasn't, mm. didn't really hold those people to account whatsoever. You know, as long as they were saying something along the lines of, we should have locked down earlier and I've got some diary entry here which indicates such. <laughs> he was just letting them get away with it. So the lack of seriousness is quite pronounced and sort of, and because it's so unserious, it's just been, the gap has been filled by all of these ridiculous sorts of talking points. You would think that they think that they've basically decided that the perfect policy is the one that we almost pursued, i.e. just like you would have locked down 
really hard, really early, mm. and then everything would have been absolutely fine. Presumably, they still think we should have kept the schools closed, whatever. You just wonder, what country do you want to point this to that did an absolutely wonderful job of this? Do you want to point to the countries in the east of Europe, which locked down very early on and very hard, and then saw their numbers roar back up again, yeah. and as a consequence, experienced um, a hell of a lot of excess deaths at the end of all of this? Also, just we've heard a lot about the... Um, COVID families, the um, families of the COVID bereaved and so on. But what about the obvious physical, mental impact that has been wrought by lockdowns? And mm. this is not really featured apart from as a kind of aside so far. But I think the most depressing thing about it is I don't, I would be surprised if anyone thought that this wasn't how it was going to go. Yeah. Because the script for it had essentially been written by the great and good from the off, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned Sweden and its lack of excess deaths. It's like, I, I'm, not, I'm sure I've not heard the country named once. You know, you think that that's any sensible person would think that's the model: the most freedom, mm -hmm. the less deaths. Where's the downside? Um, but apparently not, according to this inquiry. And it was interesting. There was a really fascinating moment um, with Michael Gove the other week. I don't know if people saw this, where he's sort of raised the spectre of the lab leak. He's, you know, mm. he suggested some lots of intelligent people are telling me that um, this virus might have come from a labor laboratory. And Hugo Keith Casey shuts him down immediately, says, that's not part of the remit of this inquiry. And you're thinking, but everything else is part of the remit of this inquiry. <laughs> <laughs> the gender balance of Boris Johnson's team is part of the remit of this inquiry. It's going to look into education. Devolution is part of the remit. Yeah. Boris was being grilled on earlier today. Why didn't he have enough meetings with Mark Drakeford? You know, the role of Dominic Cummings, presumably Brexit is part of the inquiry, but not the actual origins of the virus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tells you everything you need to know. Basically, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just despairing. You... Like, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, you said it all. I mean, so he's talking about the terms of reference. Mm. So at the outset of every inquiry, uh, the terms of reference are set, meaning these are the questions that we're going to look at. And they're, in this inquiry, unprecedentedly long. You know, there's yeah. reams and reams of it. But as you say, none of the questions that um, might be resolvable by an inquiry like this, we, you know, this inquiry could look and propose uh, a serious uh, evidential consideration of how the virus came to be in the country. And that would necessarily involve some scrutiny of the various theories around how it, how it came to be. But no, uh, we don't get that. Um, I think it's worth um, uh, just saying how extraordinarily emotional some of this inquiry has been mm. as well so much of the emphasis has been on the emotion of the, the the of the of the of the pandemic it began with a sort of film about the yeah. survivors and the and the and 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 the, and the and the and those who had passed away and obviously um to, to some extent quite rightly the families of those who have passed away have been uh, present in the room but th this this follows a trajectory for public inquiries in recent decades where the focus has been more on um, seeing to give some kind of um, emotional payback mm. for the people who have suffered, you know, the, the idea that you are doing some form of justice to them. And I think necessarily politicians, I, I think the political actors in this have emerged relatively well because they are able to say, well, look, it's all very well questioning me like this in hindsight yeah, with a view to giving some kind of emotional placation to the people who were affected. But put yourself in the room. Put yourself in the in a position of power where you do have to make decisions about how to, you know, closing down an entire economy yeah. with the consequent economic harm that that causes. Actually, these decisions weren't shouldn't have been rushed into, and of course, had they rushed into them, we might be criticising them from the other end of the scale. So, um, there is some, uh, you know, the, the kind of what what you would call the the cross examination process has has arguably put those decision makers in a in a positive light because. They are being asked about this from a position of hindsight, which 
uh, no one uh, would expect them to have at the time. Yeah, definitely. Tom, anything else you want to add? On that point about the emotionalism, I think is um, is dead on because of the fact that um, it's also an expression of the kind of tilt and the bias of the inquiry, not to be, um, mm. you know unsympathetic about this because if you had a 15 minute video about all the people whose lives were destroyed by lockdown whose you know teenage son commits suicide after months of isolation and poor mental health problems that would also feel like a, a strange slant to put mm. on what's supposed to be a kind of objective discussion so i see that very much as an expression of the fact that the uh, the narrative was set from even before the inquiry actually began and you would but nevertheless you would just hope there was some more emphasis put on the cost of lockdown because of the fact that Controlling a virus is something that isn't really in a minister's gift. They can yeah. try and mitigate the worst effects of it. They can try and protect the vulnerable as best they possibly can. Um, they they can do certain things to try and make sure that we weather the storm as best as possible whilst also not destroying the economy. But the one thing that they could they could definitely have done is not lock down, is yeah. not close the schools. Those are decisions that they are responsible for and that had never been done before. Mm. And yet the lack of scrutiny, curiosity as to whether or not that was the right thing really is striking, even if we did expect all of this to play out as it has. Definitely. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Uh, so at the weekend, COP28 kicked off uh, in the desert, hosted in Dubai uh, this year by the Sultan Al-Jaber that we've, we've come to know. It, he sort of outed himself as a bit of a climate skeptic, which I think is, it was, is interesting. Uh, Tom, this hasn't quite derailed the, uh, the talks, obviously. Mm -hmm. You know, the green... Um, the green lobby powers on regardless, it yeah. seems. It's undeterred. But um, it has been a more interesting <laughs> event than than previous years. It was a f very funny opening. What was he saying? That um, There's no science behind the decision to... To, um, kick, to, to keep it at 1.5 yeah. if you know, fossil fuels have got nothing to do with that. Was he ma maybe he was making a point about carbon capture or something. It's hard to... He, he made a not particularly good account of himself. But it did underline what a ridiculous circus mm. all of this has become on some level. I'm not suggesting that the people involved are insincere. But the whole thing is a complete like called gilded waste of time. Yeah. And there are people like the heads of these petrostates who also in this gentleman's case is also the head of the state oil company um, <laughs> who recognises it's a joke and we're trying to play their position as best as they possibly can. Mm. And then you've got some of the virtue signalling Western diplomats who don't recognise what a joke this is and are still kind of trundling along down this path regardless. So it was a nice way to begin it in that it showed what a farce the whole thing is. But it's a dangerous farce the whole the whole yeah. time. If they were just standing around clapping each other on the back, setting targets that they were never going to meet, that would be one thing. But obviously the policies that they are calling for and will be introduced, even if it is partially, come with tremendous costs yeah. to individuals, not financially speaking, just in terms of our own freedom flourishing. So... Yeah, it's been it's been farcical, but this cop is a is a dangerous farce, I think, in many respects. Yeah, look, I mean, one thing people like to highlight um, every year is the hypocrisy. I think this has had the most private jets of any of the cops. <laughs> so it's like far. they're trying to as, outdo themselves, <laughs> as well as being hosted in a, in a petro state, as well as the leader yeah. being a climate skeptic, as well as him also doing oil deals on the side yeah. during the meetings. Yeah, but the, the, I, I suppose the thing is there is a, there is obviously this sense that it's 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 one rule for us and it's another rule for for you, yeah. the ordinary people. 
Yeah, I think that the level of kind of corporate capitalism is worth noting that there are around 2,500 fossil fuel lobbyists attending mm. the COP because they rec- one issue that's massively on the table is whether they should phase out or phase down fossil fuels. That's been the big debate that has yeah. governed COP, that whether, you know, which of those two they will go for. And it, it's tempting to just laugh some of this off. I mean, the first thing you notice when you look into this COP is just how much money is sloshing around. They've mm. poured enormous amounts of money into hosting it. The first two big announcements, the first relating to kind of food and agriculture policy, the second relating to technology, green technology and energy technology, worth something like $228 billion. I mean, this is the, the to, to some extent, it's a global uh, capitalist conference mm. and, a quite, and probably not an insignificant one in terms of sourcing investment and so on. Um, but to, to, Tom's right to say that you, you can't just laugh these announcements off because what this is is an is an attempt to do politics from above. It still yeah. is a meeting of, of of technocrats from across the globe who want to manage global business and global governance uh, without recourse to the public, without recourse to uh, d- democracy, and they are making a big uh, big decisions about, for example, the future of food policy. You know, saying that governments who sign up to the the, the promise have to. Uh, ingratiate green politics into the way that they produce and manage food. That that could potentially be very serious, very mm. significant, um, especially when you're looking at developing countries. So it is hilarious that the extent of the uh, hypocrisy on show. I think it is incredible the amount of money that's that's sloshing around. But that actually, what they're deciding could be quite impactful on people's lives. Definitely. And and Tom, in the run up uh, this year in particular, there has been you know the backlash against this kind of politics, green politics, yeah. has really been growing. I mean, it's really made itself felt uh, in the UK with sort of Rishi Sunak feeling forced to, uh, you know, water down some of his net zero commitments. We've seen it in, in Europe, you know, with various elections and things like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what have you made of that? I mean, do you think that that probably isn't going to impact, you know, what the Sultan thinks about how we should deal with the climate? But mm-hmm. there is that background to these talks. No, certainly. And when Rishi Sunak showed up very briefly for his little junket there, um, that was all the tenor of the questioning, which is like, how can you come here when you've abandoned, by which they mean very mildly, watered down our, <laughs> yeah. our targets in various different areas? But I think it's a perfect example of what Luke was saying, which is this is the um, this is a kind of form of policymaking in politics which will grind on and will happily grind on, will mm. explicitly grind on, regardless of what the public actually thinks and wants. Um, this is a, a way of doing politics which is to do it behind closed doors in and amongst yourselves, set targets which then take on almost quasi-constitutional yeah. force as far as they're concerned. I mean, as soon as you even very mildly suggest you're going to deviate from the plan set at a previous COP, you're accused, of, you might as well be ripping up Magna Carta or something mm. as far as certain sections of the commentary are concerned. But it's, the problem is that at some point, and we saw it a bit with Sunak earlier this year, is that the public's frustration does become... It will express itself in a way that you can't ignore, and we've seen it even in this country previously with things like the um, you know the, the uh, fuel price protests in yeah. the early two thousands. So it's not just something that you have to look to, say the Dutch farmer revolt to see examples of that. So yes, it's a reminder of the fact that the politics of the kind of international conference, and particularly the politics of environmentalism, is explicitly anti democratic above the heads of the people. So it will go on its merry way, whatever people think in. Uxbridge and South Rice or wherever else. But at the same time, they can't carry on like that forever. Yeah. There will be a point when they have to answer to their own electorates. Um, and that's the hope, I guess, is that that backlash is significant enough that it forces at least some, you know, wiser governments than others to steer away from the path that they're going on. 
and and Luke, I mean, you could say it's not even just anti-democratic; it's almost feudalist and mm. aristocratic. <laughs> I mean, you had King Charles meeting with the Sultan of Brunei. I mean, the, obviously, we were talking about the heads of the Petros Petro states all there. There's something otherworldly about this, almost. Absolutely, it's worth noting that King Charles's speech was received extremely well, whereas Rishi Sunak's speech was received very badly. And I think that does speak to, you know, Rishi Sunak does deserve half a round of applause for at least pushing back against what is the established etiquette at these cops, which mm. is to just fall in line with the established narrative. And that there, you know, at least he is attempting to assert some degree of national interest, saying that we will reach, we will still reach these targets, but we'll do it in our in our own way. I also saw some really interesting examples of how environmental policies can translate into some quite draconian measures. So yeah. some new law passed by the Californian state legislature obliges government uh, obliges private companies to make regular reports to the state government about its supply lines, about how it's impacting carbon, that sort of thing. You see similar things popping up across Europe and Germany and elsewhere. And I think that's one way that this could start manifesting itself in these kind of subtly draconian audit measures saying, you know, this is what you, this is how you've got to do business. And that's how it begins. And then I, it's, it's not necessarily, this isn't conspiratorial, but it does change the way that the relationship between the state and, for example, private companies and private individuals, placing more obligations on people to explain themselves, explain yeah. how they're working, explain what they're doing and how they're making their decisions. Um, so I think that's one example of how the, the kind of the, the environmental politics on display at COP can slowly seep into people's lives. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. 
LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.